Our Father in heaven, as we come now to sit under the study of your word, our Father, we pray that you would indeed open our ears, open our eyes, and open our hearts, that we may receive your word to that which it truly is, the very words of God. Father, please help me as I speak, that I may speak according to the wisdom of God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so looking again at those um, pertinent verses, we'll start reading in Romans chapter 4 and simply read from verses 1 to 8. Romans chapter 4, reading from verses 1 to 8, looking this morning at verses 6, 7 and 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. When we preach the gospel, when we share the gospel, when we believe the gospel, when we hear the gospel, are we hearing a message that had never been heard until Jesus was born? Has God changed his ways of dealing with people? Has God changed his ways of dealing with sinners? Now, you might instantly think, well, yes, he has. After all, the Saviour has come. The Son of God has taken upon himself flesh. And in that way, you would indeed be correct. Yes, he has. The Saviour has come. The Son of God has taken upon himself flesh. But... The gospel, as revealed in the scriptures, has never, ever changed from the beginning of humanity, from the time when God preached the gospel to Eve in the garden, promising that the seed of the woman would bruise or crush the head of the serpent. That gospel has not changed. That message has not changed. It's been made more explicit in the New Testament. It's spelled out to us word by word, but that gospel has not changed. Often people say that salvation was by works and then along came Jesus and now salvation is by forgiveness. The scriptures have never really actually taught that. The Apostle Paul here, writing his letter to the Romans, expressing what we would call his theology, inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are the breathed out words of God. Paul was dictating a letter to his secretary, Tertius. The Holy Spirit was carrying him along. And though Paul was using his own words, though Paul was preaching from his own Bible knowledge, 
Paul himself was preaching the gospel. Paul, the converted Pharisee. Paul, the converted Jew. And when Paul says, let's turn to the scriptures, Paul was saying, let's turn to what you and I call the Old Testament. The book of Romans is filled with citations of scripture and these citations are citations that come to us from the Old Testament. He had scripture, it would appear, memorised. Old Testament scripture. Psalms, quotations from the book of Genesis, from the books of Moses. Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And there... Paul found the gospel. In Romans chapter 4, at the head of chapter 4, Paul quotes from two different parts of Scripture. He quotes from the book of Genesis concerning Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then interestingly, at verses 6 to 8, he quotes from the Psalms, he quotes King David, and he quotes from Psalm 32. Just a little interesting point here. Have you ever wondered how it is that Paul came to draw those two texts together? Genesis, Psalm 32. What what is the connection? Why does he see those two texts, which you might think are something different, not necessarily speaking of the same thing, why does he draw them together? Well, it's got to do with the word that in verse 3 in our English Bibles is translated as counted. In verse 6, it's translated counts. God counts righteousness apart from works. And in verse 8, quoting from Psalm 32, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Counted, counts, count. We're looking at the same root word, both in the Greek and then translated back to the Hebrew. Counts. In other places, it might be translated as imputes, calculates, measures, counts. Paul saw that God used the same word. And then as he studied the texts closely, he realised that God was speaking of the same thing. He was speaking of salvation by faith. He was speaking of a sinner having his sins forgiven because that sinner believed the word of God, believed the promises that he heard in God's preaching to him. Now, let me just say this to you and understand this. I'm not claiming to be any kind of prophet. I'm not claiming to have a gift of any kind of supernatural revelation. But here's the truth. If ever you hear the gospel preached in truth, if ever you hear the gospel preached in truth, whether it's shared in a conversation, whether it's shared in the text of a book, a booklet or a tract, whether it's shared in a sermon, whether it's shared in some kind of video, it really doesn't matter. 
If ever you hear the gospel preached in truth, you are actually receiving a word direct from God. God himself is speaking. Wherever and whenever that gospel is spoken, God himself is speaking. And Paul, as he studied the scriptures, realised that God has been preaching the gospel from the beginning. God has been sharing the good news, as it were, from the beginning. Paul is not saying, I've found something in Scripture that has never been there. I've found something in Scripture that is new. I've found something in Scripture that no one else has ever thought of. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that through Jesus, my Saviour, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, I can see, I can understand that this is what God has revealed in the Scriptures all along. As I've said to you, I want to look particularly this morning at that which Paul quotes in verses 6, 7 and 8 as he seeks to vindicate his preaching of the gospel of salvation by faith alone. Remembering in the book of Romans, he's basically brought an indictment against the whole world, an accusation against the whole world. He's brought an accusation from God. The summary of that accusation is found in Romans chapter 3 where Paul draws on his knowledge of the scriptures. He quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from some prophets. Let's read that in Romans chapter 3 at verse 10. He writes, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This accusation Paul levels against both the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Greeks. He levels this accusation against all of humanity. No one, not one, is righteous in the sight of God. No one, not one, is even seeking to be righteous in the sight of God. All have been given over to their sins. He goes, first of all, to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and shows that Abraham was justified by faith. And then he quotes from David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So let's have a look at that which he quotes. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 32. One of David's penitential psalms. If ever a man knew he was a sinner, surely that man must have been King David. Remember, this is King David. Saw a woman, thought she was beautiful, took her for himself. She was another man's wife. I don't care. I've got to have her. That other man was one of his most loyal servants, one of his champions, a man who ate at his table. Don't care. I've got to have her. 
when that man, through his loyalty, could not be could not be enticed into covering David's sin, David arranged for him to be killed. Or think of David's sin of numbering the people of Israel. Not much of a sin, you would think. Just a census. Just trying to find out how many people you've got. No, he wanted to find out how big his army was. I'm a great king. I want to know just how great a king I am. I want some numbers. Joab, go get me some numbers. There are times in Scripture where God indeed did number the Jewish nation. But he didn't command this one. And even Joab, who was himself something of a selfish sinner of a man, said to David, boss, this is not a good idea. We ought not be doing this. And David said, I don't care. I want the numbers. I'm a king and I want to know just how great a king I am. Get out there and get me some numbers. The result of this was the whole nation was punished and thousands of what we would call innocents were put to death. If ever a man knew he was a sinner, it was King David. And let's look at what he writes in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the stead- but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, in Romans chapter 4, Paul was speaking of being counted righteous by faith. And he spoke of Abraham believing God and being counted as righteous. And he quotes from the very beginnings of Psalm 32, what we would call the first two verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you've got um, Romans chapter 4 also available or, or open in front of you if you can sort of flick between one and the other. Notice that David speaks, um, Paul writes, just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. He counts, or I should say he recites, verses 1 and 2, which don't speak of righteousness. But look at the end of the psalm. Righteousness is spoken of at the end of the psalm. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Notice that there's a transformation here. 
At the start, David speaks of a man, probably himself as in his own mind, but he realised that here he's a sample, as it were, of any man. That man is one who has transgression that must be forgiven, sin that must be covered, iniquity which cannot be counted against him, otherwise he would be brought down to nothing, brought down to hell. A man who is neck deep in sin and desperately in need of righteousness. That man is blessed. And notice the end result of the blessing. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The man whose sins are forgiven is now the man who is glad in the Lord and rejoicing. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The man who is neck deep in sin and sinking is now counted as righteous and upright in heart. Paul knew his scriptures. He wasn't making anything up. He was understanding that which was there. And so he's quoted David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I would suggest to you that David was quoting Moses. Not citing Moses, not referencing Moses, i.e. as you would find in the book of Exodus, but something that he had read in the Exodus is on his mind. It's stuck, as it were, in his memory. Some key words are there to be found in those first two verses of Psalm 32. We're looking at the words transgression, sin and iniquity. Transgression, sin and iniquity. David's problem, mankind's problem is what? Transgression, sin and iniquity. Turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. Moses has asked to see the glory of God revealed. Moses has asked to be brought face to face with the living God. I'm sure most of you who are familiar with the scriptures know what God has said. If you see my face, you will die. But I will hide you in the cleft of a rock and you may gaze upon my hindermost parts as I pass you by. But it turns out that the sight of God is not as important as that which God has to say about himself. God who knows all things. God who cannot speak a lie. God whom we would not know unless he chose to make himself known. We would know nothing of God unless God chose to reveal himself. And here, recorded for us in words, is God 
speaking about God. That means it's important. When God speaks about himself, these are words that you want to pay close attention to. You know, sometimes people speak about themselves and you don't know if they're being honest or not. And you don't know if you really ought to pay attention to what they're saying. Sometimes people boast. And they tell you that they're better people than they actually are. And you don't know whether you can really listen to anything they've got to say. We don't honestly like people that talk about themselves very much, you and I. I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure you're the same as I am. If you meet someone and for the first five minutes of the conversation all they're talking about is themselves, I kind of come to the conclusion that I hope I never meet them again. That kind of person often get well, I won't say often. I know of that kind of person who has gotten a nickname. They called him Pothole. Why? Because everyone wanted to avoid him. Everyone wanted to go around him. Whatever you do, don't hit the pothole. Because all he ever talked about was himself. But it's a bit different when God speaks about himself, isn't it? First of all, God is almighty and all-powerful. He can't make any boast that he himself could not fulfil. You know, it, it basically doesn't matter what, what it is that God has to say about himself. He is God. Exodus chapter 34, Ling, we'll start at verse 6. Now, you will notice it says, The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord. If you don't know, what that means is that in the background, in the original language, is the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh or Jehovah simply depends on who's translating it. Probably the most accurate translation of the name is Yahweh, which sounds like the Hebrew for I am that I am. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Let's just think about a few key points in the text. The name Yahweh is used three times. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed his own name twice. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh God. Notice it speaks of steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Hased, Hased. This is love that is associated with keeping promises. This is love that sticks to its word. It's not about passion. It's not about romance. It's about commitment, self-commitment, that kind of love. 
it's particularly associated with covenants in the Old Testament. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, notice the very first thing that Yahweh wants us to know. He is a God forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Turn back to Psalm 32 just for a moment and notice what the psalmist's problem was. Psalm 32 verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The order is different, but the key words are the same. Transgression, sin, iniquity, iniquity, transgression, sin. Now, do you see why I'm telling you that what David had on his mind as he was composing Psalm 32 was God's own revelation of himself? Blessed is the one for whom these things are forgiven. Blessed is the one who has a covenant relationship with Yahweh. Blessed is the one who knows that he walks in the steadfast covenant-keeping love of Yahweh. Turning back to Exodus chapter 34. What does Yahweh want us to know about himself? He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in covenant-keeping love and faithfulness. For thousands, a number uncounted, for thousands, for anyone, for a Jew or a Gentile who believes his words, who believes his promises. But if you look at verse 7, there's something that you might think is a contradiction and that's in the contradiction that we find, as it were, the power of the gospel. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and you say, yes, yes, that's the message I want to hear. Then God says, but, but. Have you ever, as a young man, asked a girl out, you know, you, you've, got a, you've got a crush on some girl, you, you like her. You try and get her to go out with you and she says, look, I like you. And then the next word is, but. I like you, you're fine, but. At that moment, you know what's happening, don't you? She's, she's about to tell you, no, I'm not going out with you. I don't really like you that much. <laughs> The answer is going to be no. You know, but it negates that which came before it. God wants us to know that he's merciful and gracious, that he's slow to anger and that he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Do you see a problem here? If you're guilty of iniquity, transgression and sin, and there are, I just use the word. I should put that another way. 
If you have committed iniquity, transgression and sin, what is the word that would describe your condition? You are... Starts with a G. Guilty. You are guilty. If you have committed iniquity, transgression and sin... You are guilty. And so here we have God saying on the one hand, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. My friends, we're on the knife's edge. We really are. We want the forgiveness. We want the blessings. We want the covenant relationship with God. We want all of these things. We want them. But Scripture says God will by no means clear the guilty. God will by no means discount the guilt. What can we do? What can we do? We're trapped. We're trapped. What can we do? Nothing. We've sinned against God. We're guilty. Iniquity, transgression and sin, we've done it. We're guilty. What can we do? What can a man do? What can I do? What can you do? Answer? Nothing, nothing. He will by no means clear the guilty. We can't pay it off. We're in debt and we can't pay it off. We are, in terms of righteousness, bankrupt. The debt increases. The compound interest just adds up and up. If we could give our own lives a million times, we couldn't repay the debt that was owned, that was owed. We can't wash away the guilt. We can't get rid of it. What's the state of humanity? Guilty. What are sinners? Guilty. What can we do? I'm telling you, you and I, nothing. Okay, God has made promises. God has revealed his mercy, his graciousness. What happens to the guilt? How can this be solved? Is this what Paul found? Is this the new thing? Did Paul find this when he thought about Jesus? Well, I'm going to give you an answer. The answer is no, that's not the way it works. Paul has preached nothing in the New Testament that he could not draw from the Old Testament. Absolutely nothing. I want you to turn to Psalm 103. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm of happiness. It's a psalm of rejoicing. It's a beautiful psalm written by... King David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now, think carefully about what we've just been reading in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 where Yahweh spoke directly to Moses. Think carefully. You see, David knew about that passage of Scripture. Verse 7 of Psalm 103. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Direct citation, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Has David got anything more to say to us here in this psalm about the forgiveness of sins? The answer is yes, he does. Let's keep reading. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Look at verse 12. Actually, let's look first of all at verse 11. Remember in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, what we were told about the Lord? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, covenant-keeping love, promise-keeping love. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Remove, take away, separate. Remove, take away, separate. You've committed iniquity, transgression and sin. Oh, my friend, we're guilty. We're guilty. But somehow or other, by some means or other, God removes our guilt from us. He removes it from us. Remember the warning, but he will by no means clear the guilty. He removes He takes away our guilt from us. How would it be? How would it be? What could happen? What could happen that this could be done? Now, I know some of you already know the answer. You're just wondering which text of Scripture he's going to turn us to. What happened? What happened to the guilt? What happened to it? What happened to our sinful deeds? Where did they go? 
How did they get removed? Remember, this is God who keeps his own word, my friends. This is God who is just. You know, he doesn't cheat. He doesn't act out fantasies. He doesn't pretend. He's not false. He's not fickle. His word must be honoured. His commandments must be honoured. His law must be honoured. He has said of himself, guilt must be dealt with. But I will by no means clear guilty. Psalm 103 tells us that our transgressions are removed from us. But we've got to understand the where and the how and the why. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. The Apostle Paul is speaking of the gospel that he has been preaching. In this letter, he's more or less justifying his ministry to the Corinthians. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, Because we have concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What's the penalty of sin? Death. What has it always been? In the garden, Adam and Eve. What were the words? What did God say? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Dying, you will die. Death. The result of sin is death. Guilt brings about death. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's an interesting thing to say. Why would he say that? Because their sins have been removed from them as far as the east is from the west. Paul says, when I look at Christians, I'm not looking at the old man. I'm not looking... At Adam, when I look at Christians, I'm looking at Jesus. I'm looking at those whose life is in Christ, whose sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We often think about new creation sort of from our point of view. New life, new creation, eternal life. We're already of the new creation. The new creation is coming. The promise of scripture is that the old creation will be done away. It will be consumed by fire. God will bring forth the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. But why don't we look at it from at least what we know in scripture From God's point of view, I don't claim to speak for God apart from that which God has revealed in his word. 
You see, Paul is saying, remember, Paul says, I no longer regard people according to the flesh. Why? Because Paul has learnt to look with the eyes of Christ. You see, if God has made us a new creation, what has he done? What has he done? If there's an old creation, Scott Clements, there's a new creation, Scott Clements, what has God done? To speak it personally, he has separated me from my sins as far as the east is from the west. God looks upon us as new creations. He's not looking upon the old creation. The old creation has been done to death already in the sight of God. The old creation has already been killed. That which our sin demands of God, God has done. How? Well, let's keep reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has done something for us through Christ. God has reconciled us to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, a little bit more is revealed. Something is happening in Christ. God is not counting their trespasses against them. Remember, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Something's happening with the guilt of trespass. In the work that Jesus does, in the work that Jesus accomplishes on the cross, Something's happening. The guilt of trespass is not being counted against us. You, me, we. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal for us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Verse 21. Here we hear it. Here we see it. For our sake. Our sake. We who are in Christ, we who are beloved of God, we who are the blessed ones. For our sake, he made him to be seen who knew no sin. Is there any true man who has walked the earth and knew no sin? And the only answer there is, yes, that was Jesus, truly God and truly man. He made him to be seen who knew no sin. He was counted by God as being guilty of our sin. He was counted by God as being guilty of our sin. Imagine that, the sinless one, willingly offering himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. Our sins counted against him. Remember God's self-revelation back in Exodus chapter 34? But he, so God was speaking of himself, so, but I will by no means clear the guilty. In this picture, 
2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Who's the guilty one? Jesus. He's counted as the guilty one. Our sin, our iniquity, our transgression. The death that we should have died. The punishment that we should have received. Separated from us as far as the east is from the west. How can that be? God lays it all upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. God lays it all upon the shoulders of Jesus of Nazareth. And he died. In another place in scripture, we're told that our sins were crucified with him. Our sins were nailed to the cross in Christ. Our sins received their just punishment in him. So that in him, last part of verse 21, in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not that much different to the thoughts of Psalm 32, is it? We start off with iniquity, transgression and sin. It's removed far from us. It's laid on the shoulders of another. That other is counted as sin. And we, being a new creation, we become the righteousness of God. And so God, through Christ, is true to his own self-revelation in a way that we could never, ever have thought of ourselves, that we could never, ever have done ourselves. God is true to his own self-revelation. He's forgiven iniquity, transgression and sin. And at the same time, he has by no means cleared the guilty. For the punishment of our sin has fallen upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The death that had to be paid has been paid on our behalf. And so turning back, if you want, to Romans chapter 4, we find that the Apostle Paul keeps speaking about taking hold of these things by faith, believing. Starting at verse 1 again of Romans chapter 4, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are, the, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Through believing, through faith, not through works, Paul is preaching a gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Justification to be proclaimed innocent in the sight of God, to be proclaimed not guilty in the sight of God, to be proclaimed acceptable in the sight of God, to be proclaimed righteous in the sight of God. My friends, we speak a lot of the forgiveness of sins and surely that is a great and wonderful blessing. 
But we're only speaking of half the blessing if we do not speak of the gift of the righteousness of Christ that is given to all who believe. The gift of being counted righteous in the sight of God. The gift of being justified by faith alone. Paul preaches this gospel to Jew and to Greek. And in a way, it's the gospel that was preached from the very beginning. Justification by faith alone. Justification through believing the promises of God. Not justification by works, justification by faith. You say one must repent of their sins. Is that not a work? One must repent of our sins. We must repent of our sins. But is that a work? Not in terms of justification. It's something you have to do, but you wouldn't do it apart from the grace of God within you. You wouldn't do it apart from the grace of God within you. You wouldn't do it apart from the power of God's Holy Spirit. You couldn't do it. Apart from me, you can do nothing, said the Lord Jesus. The flesh profits nothing, said the Lord Jesus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. My friends, if we do the works of repentance, it's not our work. It's God working in us. Yeah, we must do them. But what interest did you ever have in doing them apart from God, apart from the grace of God, apart from the power of God's Holy Spirit? My friends, if you're actually doing some good thing according to the commandment of God, God doesn't owe you anything. You owe God even more. That's the truth. The gospel is incredibly humbling. It's incredibly humbling. It requires of us that we understand that we have no good thing of our own. Not only do we need the forgiveness of sins, but we need the power of God to even do one thing right in the sight of God. The gospel does not tell us that we can work off or pay back our salvation. The gospel tells us that in our obedience of faith, in our acts of repentance, for example, we are actually going deeper and deeper into God's debt. We owe him more and more. We owe him everything. We owe him our whole lives. No one gets to boast. No one gets to boast of anything. Anything that we good, any good thing that we do, it's God working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Any good thing that we do, we should be the most humble of people. We should be the most happy of people for our sins are forgiven. People justified by faith alone. Would there be anywhere else in Scripture that would support that which I've just taught you? There certainly is. I want you to turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah, the unwilling prophet, sent to preach the gospel to the enemies of his people. He did not want them to be saved. He wanted them to be destroyed. He did not want them to be forgiven. He wanted them to be judged. 
We know the story. In rebellion, he ran as far from. He ran as far from his mission as he possibly could. He wanted the Ninevites to die. Yet God, through various providences, miraculous intervention, drew him back, sent him to preach. Repent of your sins or the judgment of God will come. Verse 1 of Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. I just, you know, I, I, there's something I find kind of amusing there. Because I can tell you that I, I'm not sure that I know a preacher who doesn't want to see a whole city repent. Who just doesn't want to see a whole city repent and turn to God seeking forgiveness. And that's what happened. And this displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Who did he just quote? What did he just quote? What did he just refer directly to? Exodus chapter 34, the words that God spoke to Moses. God's revelation of himself. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You hear what he's saying? This is God's prophet. This is Jonah. Don't worry about whether or not Jonah was a willing prophet or an unwilling prophet. Don't worry about whether or not he was a happy preacher of the gospel or an angry preacher of the gospel. Just look at what he has said. God says, let me put it in the simplest form. God says to Jonah, Jonah, go to this evil, wicked, idolatrous Gentile city filled with people who hate the Jews and there preach the gospel. Jonah says, no way. Don't preach the gospel to them. Why? Jonah says, because I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He might as well have said forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. Sent to preach the gospel to sinners. And in the back of his mind is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Jehovah, Jehovah, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. Even the Gentiles... The wicked, idolatrous Gentiles would have their sins forgiven if they believed the word of God that was preached to them. Jonah didn't tell them to be circumcised. Jonah didn't tell them to become the old covenant people. He didn't tell them to join themselves to the nation of Israel. He told them to repent. He told them that God will judge them in their wickedness, repent and seek his forgiveness. And in the back of his mind was Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Why? 
because that's how God has worked with humanity, with guilty, sinful men from the beginning. No one has ever worked their way into God's good books. By grace, through faith, God has counted people as being righteous. And that's it. There has never been salvation by any other means. People have believed the promises of God according to that which was preached to them. And in their faith, they have found the forgiveness of sins and God has separated them from their sins as far as the east is from the west, even idolatrous Ninevites. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul knew his scriptures. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul was an apostle, obviously gifted and blessed by God to be able to bring us, as it were, the gospel through his own writings, through the book of Romans. My friends, our God is a gracious and merciful God, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. And the blessed one whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, against whom the Lord does not count his sins, is not only forgiven, but counted righteous. My friends, this is our God, our great and merciful and gracious God. And even now, the gospel is here, preached for any who will believe, for any who will trust in God, for any who will repent of their sins and seek his forgiveness. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you and praise you. For you are a merciful God, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. And we praise you that the guilt of our sins was laid upon the shoulders of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that he has been raised from the dead and that in him we have hope, we have life, we have life eternal. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.